Hi, this is Damon Pistolka, host of the Faces of Business, where I talk with interesting people sharing life and business experiences to entertain, engage, build community, and provide information to help others succeed. If you're interested in learning more about one of our guests or how we are helping business owners generate wealth and build businesses they can sell or succeed at Exit Your Way, you can find more information on our website, ExitYourWay.com, or by contacting me directly, Damon at ExitYourWay.com. I hope you enjoy the show. All right, everyone. Welcome once again to the Faces of Business. I am your host, Damon Pastalka. We are here with, I just have to say, and we're going to be, today we're going to be talking about making an impact with sales enablement. I'm just excited because we're here with a legend. We have Mike Kunkel from Sparks IQ. Mike, thanks for being with us today. Hey, Damon. Thanks for having me. This is going to be a lot of fun. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. So, Mike, without further ado, there there are not many people that have your level of sales experience, sales training experience. So, I would like you to start back a ways here and talk about what really got you into sales. What made you think that sales was something that you wanted to do? I don't think I ever thought that in my life. Uh, you know what's funny, uh, Damon? I, I actually have two music degrees, and I started out playing as a professional musician. And for a long story reasons we won't get into, I decided to get out of that business, and I wound up back home paging through the newspaper. Remember those? Yeah. yeah. And, and, and I'm looking at the classifieds, and I answered this ad to answer the telephone. And uh, so I get hired at this place, and it's pretty funny because it's a balloon company that mm-hmm. does a variety of things, but it, it they actually sold, like, clowns and stripping gorillas and, and, and giant six-foot bananas that would come and sing happy birthday to people or do kids' parties. Okay. And they had a business side of it where they sold imprinted merchandise and ribbons and balloons and all of that for, uh, you know, to companies for launches and grand openings. So mm-hmm. real business, I you know, is, yeah. but, but, but the balloon side of it was pretty funny. Yeah. So anyway, I, I, I wind up on the telephone taking inbound calls and my job was to sell things. Now, you know, I just spent four years in college and two years on the road in a practice room you know, eight hours a day or playing yeah. nonstop. I had absolutely no sales skills whatsoever. But for for whatever reason, and God bless him, Jeff Waldron, the owner of that company, saw something in me and be really invested in me and trained and coached me. Mm-hmm. Now, that's an important point because that's going to shape my perception of training and coaching for the yeah. rest of my career. I took off like a rocket under this guy's wing, and I eventually uh, I became a great salesperson for him, moved from the crazy balloon delivery side of the business to the business side, selling uh, imprinted merchandise and, and you know balloons and helium and all of that. And I decided that since we had a Sears and Roebuck, remember when it was Roebuck? Yeah. <laughs> we had a Sears and Roebuck in, in the town. And every now and then they, you know, they had events. I thought, mm-hmm. 
you know, I bet I could sell Sears some stuff, right? We could, you know, be part of their grand opening plan. And so I targeted Sears, found out they were headquartered in Chicago, which years later I, I lived and worked down the street from that, that building. But, uh, you know, I, and, and this was the days where, you know, th there was an email. Right? Yeah. I was calling them on the phone and talking to them live. And I was sending them things like, you know, a, a nice delivery of something. And I, you know, I nurtured them over the course of six months and landed that account for Sears for grand openings across the country, turned out eventually to be a multi-million dollar account wow. for this small business that I was operating. And eventually I got promoted to uh, to basically run that business so the owner could be more of an absentee owner and sort of float in and out. So it was a phenomenal experience for me. And, you know, I, I, I really was horrible in the beginning when he started to train and coach me, but I did something that I did in music. I practiced. What a concept. I bought a, I bought a cassette recorder. Um, I bought a VHS video. Remember the big ones you had to put on your shoulder? Yeah. You know, yeah. Right. And I bought a tripod and I, you know, I set those things up and I practiced and I drilled and rehearsed and I bought tape sets from Nightingale Conant. And, you know, I, I was probably about 25 minutes away from this place. So, you know, driving in, I'm listening to Zig Ziglar and Roger mm -hmm. Dawson and you know, all of these guys. And I got to know those tapes so well, I could actually talk along with them. All right. And I really invested in becoming as good as I could be. I finally realized, though, you don't get promoted to owner. Right. So I'm running this this place. And, you know, this is back in the geez, What was it? The uh 1984 to 1989, I was I was working there. Yeah, I decided to try uh, to get into corporate America. So I applied for a couple positions, got into uh, corporate America, had to step back into selling, but mm -hmm. went in. And that year, I outsold the rest of the office uh, single handedly, and they promoted me into a branch manager position. Mm -hmm. and the office was not doing so well. Right. But we did we did some interesting things. I said, look, hey, everybody, one day a week, I'm going to give you a dedicated prospecting day where we protect you from everything else in this branch office and anybody who calls in for you or walks in, whatever. And you're just going to prospect that day. Now, it doesn't mean you don't prospect other days, but everybody gets a dedicated day yeah. to focus on driving business. And then we started role playing. Right. The same thing with, uh, you know, I did with music. We, we, you know, we role played in the morning and we role played at lunch. And man, these guys and girls absolutely hated me at first for doing that. And then an interesting thing happened. They started to get good. Yeah. And they got excited. And so eventually they'd start, you know, they'd be walking down the hallway, Damon, and would toss objections at each other or, you know, or try to trip each other up and do a little role play like right in the spot. And yeah. it became a really fun environment. And I've been told not to say this because it sounds like I'm making it up, but we increased results in that branch that year, 600% year over year. Yeah. And then the company said to me, hey, do you think you could teach other people how to do this? And in 1991, that's how I got into sales training. And it's, awesome. uh, you know, it's been a fun ride ever since. But one of the things that, that I learned very early is that you just can't move the needle 
by just training people, right? Yeah. Because yeah. people, people forget stuff or they don't have enough practice or there's no follow-up coaching or they don't believe that your way is going to work and think their, their way is better. There are dozens of reasons why training just on its own doesn't naturally move the needle. So I got really interested in performance improvement. And I joined the what was then the American Society for Training and Development. Today, it's the Association for Talent Development. I joined the National Society for Performance Improvement. Today, that's the International Society for Performance Improvement. I started reading everything I could get my hands on, you know. And I'd, I'd and these people would write these articles for magazines, mm-hmm. and I would hunt them down and call them up on the phone yeah, and say, hey, I read this article that you wrote, and I would start talking to these people. And it, amazingly, they, you know, they were interested that, you know, they were like, wait a minute, how did you get my number? <laughs> I had done detective work practically to do it because there was no LinkedIn back mm-hmm. in those days, but I'd hunt these people down. And so I, I became a student of how do you get better organizational results? How do you drive change in organizations? How do you help not an individual rep get better, although that's certainly part of the picture. That's what frontline sales managers should be doing. But how do you step back and look at this, look at all the moving parts and how the gears turn and what's happening and what should be happening, and how do you put a plan together to increase organizational performance and make that happen? And so this organization that I got into gave me almost free reign about how to run training. But they said, here's the thing. We want to know that we're getting results for what we're, what we're investing. And so I started to, uh, you know, look up evaluation methods and Kirkpatrick and mm-hmm. Jock Fitzends and, uh, you know, eventually uh, Jack and Patty Phillips and the ROI Institute and how organizations were evaluating training and other performance improvement methods. And that's how the whole thing really started and snowballed for me. And, you know, I've worked in a, a bunch of uh, Fortune 100 companies. Yeah, I've yeah. worked at a startup software company. I've worked in a bunch of mid-market and private firms. Uh, but every place I've gone, and a bunch of different verticals too, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Every place I've gone, it's really been about how do I figure out what's happening here? How do I do a front-end analysis, a needs analysis, a gap analysis, whatever one of the 30 names that we call this stuff, you know, how do you, how do I do that? And then figure out how to move the needle. And my titles were almost always sales training for many years. Then there was sales effectiveness, sales performance development. But for me, it was always about more than training. It was about how do I get marketing engaged in this? And how do I understand their research and the the messaging they're putting together and incorporate that into into what the sales team is doing. And I was building playbooks before anybody ever heard the term playbook. In fact, back in those days when I started to figure out that if I that if I collaborated cross-functionally across the organization and get people aligned on how to support the sales force, you could drive a lot better results. And so I, I was doing sales enablement before sales enablement was even a phrase. And mm-hmm. I, you know, that's really how it all came together and how I wound up, you know, writing a book eventually on the building blocks of sales enablement and the systems that I put into place and all of the things that I experimented with and almost like a, a living laboratory over the years 
to figure out how do you really get results and improve improve results and move the needle on the metrics that matter the most. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for for people listening here, if, if go check out Mike's profile because I mean, when you look at your profile, and I'm gonna I'm gonna go through a few of the companies you worked with and positions. You know, starting out, you know, Hyatt was one of the first big companies that you you'd recommend director of sales training and management development. You look at, then you're in Pfizer, you're in, uh, what I see, GE in here is one of them too, and uh, Novastar Mortgage, McKesson Health, Torchmark, you know, Insphere Insurance. There's just, man, like you said, it's the industries, and we're talking about sales transformation leader, director of sales effectiveness, director of sales training, director of training delivery services. I mean, man, you you got it going on here. And and then GE is another one I saw in there. So mm-hmm. when you when you had all these things and you, and you said here here I got to go back on this is a long thing cuz we did man even more fast lane and brain shark and God, you've done so many different things. And then you're part of the Sales Education Found Foundation as well. I think that's super mm-hmm. cool, trying to give back and help with that. But so you're going through all these things. What really sparked your interest in going out on your own? Because you did that about 15 years ago as well. You you went out and wrote mm-hmm. the book and the other things there. Yeah, I, I, I don't, I think with... Uh... With force field performance services, I think I was segueing at that point from uh, the startup software firm that had been bought a couple of different times. And I didn't, you know, it, it seemed like they were going to consolidate, seemed like they were going to, you know, wrap a couple of businesses together. Um, and so I jettisoned uh, out of that and uh, into force field performance services, mm-hmm. uh, actually uh, I did a brief stop at Pfizer that may have been in the middle. Um, but, you know, I, it was really interesting then because I was taking a view of going out to small business owners, like the one that I had started out working with mm-hmm. and helping them look for ways to decrease expenses or costs or increase revenue or profit. And I was using Kurt Lewis's force field analysis method that, I'm still using today and teaching other clients about, right? Where you take a look at the current state and say, okay, here's where we are. Here's where we want to be, right? And and look at the gap between those two and then say, okay, what are all of the things that are driving me forward? What are the driving forces moving me from point A to point B? And what are the restraining forces that are holding me back? And when you map that out, you ask yourself two questions. What can I do to reduce or eliminate the restraining forces? And what can I do to add or strengthen the driving forces? And those become your plan mm-hmm. to move you from point A to point B and manage that entire change process. And so I was just using that logical process to, to help identify for small business owners, how could they be more successful, more profitable, you know, uh, you know, reduce costs and and increase revenue, and I had a I had a blast doing that. But yeah. each time that I did 
a consulting gig, and I did it later with Transforming Sales Results, eventually it dawned on me that I really like being part of a, a larger aligned team. And, you know, being this being the solopreneur, um, for me, just, you know, it's a lot of fun for a while. And one thing I did get was a lot of exposure to different verticals that I wouldn't have had an opportunity to mm -hmm. probably otherwise. But I really like being part of an aligned team. So I decided after a couple of years to, um, you know, to get back into corporate America. Uh, I joined uh, Novastar Mortgage, which was uh, on NASDAQ, I think is NFI, Novastar Financial Inc. It was B2B wholesale mortgage. And we had AEs going into bro mortgage brokerages and convincing them to give us just the loans that we wanted. So it's an interesting persuasion and influence and sales gig. And they were a really cool company, um, eventually crushed by the subprime mortgage uh, meltdown. But we had some really cool years there. And that's where I probably, for the first time, really stitched together all of the building blocks of sales enablement and got a sales hiring system, a sales readiness system, a sales training system, a sales management system, a sales coaching system, and pieced all of those things together and then created an entirely new onboarding approach. And man, we, I mean, we were blowing it out of the water there. The results wow. were absolutely phenomenal. We had top-down support from the president. When actually, when he, uh, when he, when we, we were all formed in the beginning, he he sat us down at this uh, conference table in in Kansas City at their headquarters, and said, "Look, I believe in your mission. I believe in what your leader has assembled you all to do. But I got to tell you, if we can't point to to ROI a year from now, we won't all be sitting around this table." Yeah. So once again, right, it was really about how do you deliver business value, or as I call it today, right, how do you make an impact with enablement? And I was really lucky that, uh, Damon, that in my early years, right, at Household Finance, um, and then, you know, especially at Novastar, that I was working for leaders that gave us the latitude and the top-down support but wanted to be able to prove that they were getting something in return. And Novastar was probably where I delivered my absolutely biggest return. The team and I delivered is, is over 300, almost 398 million year over year in accretive revenue. And this was a number that the CFO and the president, after seeing all of our analysis, were willing to attribute to the work that we had done. And so that was a really cool ROI study that we got to do. It was a year-long effort. We collaborated with marketing because we didn't we didn't want to be taking, uh, take you know attributing something to our work that might have been because in this month marketing ran a special campaign, mm -hmm. and so we actually tracked the trend line of growth and saw what different things were dropping at different points, and you know all evaluation is a lie, right? It just happens to be the lie that you get together and agree on. Yeah. But we got together and we agreed on it. We, we figured out ways that we could say, okay, well, look, in this month we were going to be here based on our trend line. We ran this marketing campaign and we got here. So let's take that chunk of difference. We'll attribute that to the marketing campaign and the rest of it goes to the work that the training team and others had done to, you know, to get, you know, to keep the, the trend line moving in the direction that they already had it moving.
And so, you know, we uh, we did that and worked together with uh, with marketing and what today would probably be referred to as sales operations and the mm-hmm. executive team and all of the leaders. And we figured out how to attribute that stuff and how to evaluate what we were doing. And, you know, it's not like I didn't make mistakes along the way, right? We, uh, we, we developed a sales hiring system. Yeah. And we studied the top producers. We brought in a company that did psychometric assessments. We learned behavioral interviewing. We used simulations and role plays. And we stitched all this together, right? And it was so cool. But guess what happened, right? We couldn't hire anybody in the current pipeline. And it was like, oh, hell, now what do we do, right? Yeah. So we stepped back with recruiting and with the folks who, who ran that team. And we figured out, well, we had learned how to hire right, but we hadn't changed our sourcing strategy. So yeah. where could we go and what could we do to figure out where to go get the people that could actually get through our gauntlet of yeah. hiring? And so, you know, the team did that. They figured out where do we source? And we did that by looking at the top producers and talking with them and figuring out what were their interests and what did they do in school and what were their degree programs and, you know, were they into sports and where do they have mm-hmm. military backgrounds? And we looked at all of that and we found out that there was a pattern of sports and military. Yeah. And so we started recruiting differently and we're, we're finding that we could get people in the pipeline that we could hire. We went from a 75% first-year churn rate of, yeah. of account executives down to 25, I think in about six months of starting that program. And by a year later, the churn was down to 12%. Wow. Radical difference, right? But yeah. you know, it was because we really stepped back and took this logical approach. And then we stubbed our toe and figured out, well, now we've got to have to source differently. Yeah. Right? But that's that's been the beauty of this is that I've got a I've got a career long of 35 years or 37 years, I think, this year of learnings like that where I've made plenty of mistakes. Yeah. But we we did what we could to figure out, well, why did that happen? Or why aren't we seeing the lift that we should? Okay, what do we need to do differently? And everything we did just felt like a learning laboratory. And we kept working at it until we moved the needle and got the results that we wanted. Yeah. Wow, that is... Hey, let's just back up a bit. I mean, if people have been listening to this, you got to back up. You got to back this up a little bit and listen, because you went through a lot of stuff. We got... We got uh, Arpenteers listening says, "Hey, follows the same strategy. Awesome, awesome. Thanks for thanks for dropping a comment in there. And if you're listening, and you got some comments or questions, go ahead and drop them in the in the chat here while we're listening. So, Mike, there is a lot that you uncovered there. Let's let's just let's just talk about a little bit of that. I mean, sure. How far ahead were you of other places when you started to, to talk about a system for hiring?" sales readiness, training, coaching, and a whole new onboarding approach for your salespeople. I mean, that was in the days when people just thought you just kept hiring salespeople and, and you know, you, you found good salespeople, I don't know, genetically. Um, so, yeah, well, I guess that's true, right? Yeah, yeah, it was. I mean, it really was. It's like, oh, you, 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 you've done sales. 
we need salespeople, so let's hire you. And then it was kind of throw you to the wolves in a lot of a lot of ways and, and go out and do what you do. Um, when when you started doing that, what did you really notice about the people? I mean, because it's that's a change. Even the people that were there that were successful salespeople already. When you started doing, hey, we're, we're talking about, are we really ready? What training, coaching they're kind of do? What were some of the things that you really thought were fundamental that, that made that big difference that wasn't being done prior? Yeah, you know, I, uh, I read Peter Senge uh, stuff on learning organizations and systems. And I was uh, a member, as I mentioned, of the International Society for Performance Improvement. I was reading a lot of things about Human, what they called human performance technology or HPT uh, that morphed a bit into performance consulting. And so all of these disciplines that I was reading about, OD, organization behavior, uh, organization design and development, um, TQM, right? All of, you know, Six Sigma, all yeah. of these were all about systems and process and methodology and tools and getting people aligned, but treating the organization as this ecosystem. And so I just tried to bring that to work. And, you know, sometimes I would try to talk about that stuff in that language to sales leaders. And usually, you know, their eyes would roll up into the back of their heads. Yeah. And, and I learned early not, not to do that necessarily. But um, what I would, what I, I would look for the problems and I would look for the pain and I would look for that current state analysis and future state analysis and what was, what was the difference and where did they want to go? And then I got curious and I asked a lot of questions. So, well, if, if you want to get there, what are we going to do differently? Because if we could get there, we'd probably already be there, right? Yeah. If, yeah. Without, without changing anything. And so I had a lot of like what I called curious conversations with the leaders. And I would just, you know, talk to them about the current state, desired future state. Why did they want to get there? What things were they doing that they thought were going to produce the results and kind of did some of this analysis without them knowing I was doing this analysis yeah. with them, yeah. right? And then that 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 sort of fostered a level of buy-in because they were engaged in the process and they saw me really like leaning in and asking questions and trying to understand the business and how the, you know, how the parts move together. And I developed a trust in that, that, you know, I didn't always explain to them deeply what I was doing. Like, well, now I'm going to create a sales readiness system. Yeah, right? yeah. But I would build, I would start building bits and pieces of that, and then I would explain in what I had done there and show them the results that they got. And eventually, a lot of them said, "Go do your thing, man, and report back about how it's going, and I will give you the support you need because you're moving the needle." And yeah. that's how I started to build mo momentum with it. But when I went into uh, one company. Um, turnover was absolutely horrible. You know the 80-20 rule, right? Well, this was something like 91-9, right? The the founders of this business had had brought together a lot of the people they had worked with over the years that they knew were stellar. Yeah. And that 9% of the sales force at this point was driving 91% of the business. Wow. The rest of the people were floundering because they had no way to encapsulate what these 9% did and replicate that across the sales force. So 
I started laying out for them how you could do that with a top producer analysis and how mm -hmm. we could figure out what do these people do that are different from what these people do and how do you get the people who are in the middle to continue, stop, or start things to perform more like the top. And we use that to build the content for the training programs, the readiness, the hiring, everything else all around that top producer analysis. And that was something that they that people really gravitated toward because who doesn't want to have the rest of your sales force work like the top? Yes. Now, I learned a lot in doing that. I've done something like 16, 17 years now of top producer analysis. And I found out that that top one to 5%, they sell almost based on the magic of their personality and sales DNA and their makeup. And sometimes it's really hard to take what that top tier does and replicate it. But if you go under that 4%, think 4%, right? It's the top 20% of the top 20%. If you go under that, there's 16% left in the top 20. Top 4% yeah. magicians, 16%. What I found over the years is that that 16% happen to generally be mere mortals like the rest of us, right? Yeah. Who have figured out the magic sauce in that company with that product set, with their customers, et cetera. And so I spent more time looking at the top 4% so I could figure out how do I go hire more people like them? And I looked at the 16% to say, how can I take what these people who have figured out the magic sauce here and replicate this across the organization and try to move the middle, as they say. Yeah. And it it works. It worked almost every single time I've done it. The one time where it was an abject failure, I did I did not have top-down leadership support. Mm -hmm. And so I was kind of out on an island trying to do this on my own. And it just didn't work at all. And I left that company in frustration and they shall remain nameless. But it worked every other time. Because if you can find what those people are doing and you can replicate it, and yeah. that's where the systems come in, right? You train for the continue stop start for people to do the things that these people do. You set up coaching systems so that managers know what they do and they know how to diagnose performance to see what their rep is doing versus what they should be doing. And then how to field train or coach to close those gaps effectively and then get into a cycle, a cadence of coaching, creating a coaching culture and getting into this continuous loop of performance improvement. And yeah. man, uh, that's, that's how you raise the water level of sales skills across an organization and ensure that it's going to produce results. And since I had so many people who had already said to me, I want to know that we're getting something for this investment. I had already figured out how do you do this uh, evaluation and reporting. Mm -hmm. And so some companies were more worried about that than others. Hyatt was really into investing in its people. They had a great culture way before <clears> having <throat> a culture like that was fashionable. They didn't really care as much about me tracking every instance of ROI. And they wanted to know that they were getting something for it, but it wasn't like you know a deep passion or a drive. Now, at Household and Novastar, I had to really be in there evaluating mm -hmm. deeply and, and showing results and, you know, and learning from that. So, you know, I've been in both environments and I've always tried to do 
some level of ROI analysis. Yeah. Because if you wait until somebody at the top says, hey, Damon, can you show me an ROI for this? <laughs> Your goose is already cooked. Yeah. Right? You gotta. You have to be proactive about that, and you have to find a way to make an impact with enablement, and then share that you're making that impact. Yeah. Wow. I'm just. I, I'm just soaking this up, man, because you, you have done things in sales that is so cool from a process standpoint. Because I back up to when you were talking about, and I'm going to get some of these names wrong, but you know the human performance technology and, and the mm -hmm. learning that you were studying and then applying that to the processes in sales. I mean, it seems to me like you were, you were a curious student that wanted to learn how people are thinking and how to maximize that, you know, improve the way we're doing things. And you married that with sales and you developed these systems and processes from that. And that's Man, it. that's cool. Man, that's cool. I was always the guy who wanted to know how the toaster worked. Yeah. Right? You yeah. Know? And I used to joke, you know, I could take apart anything. I just can't always put it back together. Right. But that's, you know, it's that it was that curiosity. It was that. And then, yeah. you know, I, I don't know where it came from. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it might have been my music background. It might have been the mentors and teachers I had. You know, I had a music teacher say to me once, when I, you know, something went really well. And um, he said, be pleased, but never satisfied. Yeah. And that was an early thing that was sort of drilled into me. And so I had sort of this achievement driver. I wanted to make an impact. And then I had this curiosity about figuring out how did the gears turn and how do you make them turn faster? And I think all of those things, you know, kind of by me by accident getting into sales, right? When I, I got out of music, um, it all really just sort of gelled for me over time when those things came together. But I really did love, you know, figuring out how the gears turned and how yeah. to build better, how to build a better mousetrap. Well, yeah, because you said somewhere as I was reading and preparing for this, you said that uh, on your profile, you said we, I, I diagnose first, then prescribe. I love that because so many, so many people come in with a preconceived notion of we need to do this. And I think that's one of the biggest mistakes that, that you can make as a, you know, and, and people said before, you know, if you, if you got a hammer, the solution to everything is use the hammer, right? Um, yep. But everything looks like a nail. <laughs> everything looks like a nail. Yeah. And, and doing that, but your, your sense of curiosity and your study of human behavior and organizational development and all the other things that you mentioned allow you to marry this at a, in a much different level to help organizations. And then, then thinking about, about the ROI ahead of time to make sure you know you're creating that ROI before you know an executive asks or before the financial people want to know is is brilliant too because then you can teach your salespeople the ROI, the impact they're really making, as well. Yeah, wow. you know it's uh, it's it's interesting about that, right? It would it, one of the models that have been around for a long time for training development is ADDI, A D D I E, analysis, design, development, implementation, and evaluation. <clears throat> but even though the model ends with the evaluation in the process. 
great instructional designers start with the end in mind. And so what performance results are we looking to achieve? How will we know when we got there? And they work backwards to build a program or a learning experience or training or whatever it might be. And, you know, if they're a consultant, you know, maybe it'll be an organizational change project, but they work backwards from that end in mind, figuring out how are we going to drive that result? And then how are we going to measure it, improve it? Or how do we measure to figure out that it's not going the way that we want to yeah. fail fast, pivot, adjust, and then get the results that we want? And man, I, you know, I wish I could tell you that, that you know, I didn't have to do a lot of pivoting in my days, but, you know, you do, right? Yeah. And so, yeah. you know, you fail fast and figure out, you know, why it wasn't working and trying something different. And, you know, based on logic, you're not just throwing spaghetti at the wall, right? But you figure out, okay, you know, what do we need to do differently? I'll share a story with you. Um, I had come out of the field at this company I was talking about where they said, hey, can you teach other people to do this? And I got into training and I saw the course that they were teaching. And I went to my boss at one time. He said, well, how, how things going, Kunkel? And I said, well, you know what? No one is going to uh, leave this program and be successful because of what we're teaching. He got really, <laughs> it got really quiet. Yeah. He kind of tilted his head like my dog does. He says, what do you want to do about that? I said, well, why don't we just redesign the program based on what's working in the real world? He said, wait a minute. And he got up and he left the office. I thought, that's it. He's going to get the papers and I'm fired. But yeah. he walked into the office of a guy down the hall who was the general manager for that whole division. And he came back 10 minutes later and he said, okay, go. And so we did. We rebuilt that program from the ground up based on the, you know, I just yeah. come out of the field based on what I knew would produce results. And it did, right? And so it was really interesting. We knew that 120 days after a new hire left our program, they would be outperforming a control group of people with five years experience. Now, then an interesting thing happened, Damon. Wow. Performance went like this. And then after that 120 days, it leveled off. And then it started to do this. Yeah. And it slowly was would dive down to, to average, to level back out to where everybody else was. And, and so I said, why is that happening? And so I, I got on a plane with my boss's approval and I went on the road around all these branch offices. And what I figured out, right? And again, this was my first training mm -hmm. job and I was still reading and learning. Yeah. But I figured out that the managers in all of these places didn't really know what we were teaching. And yeah. they were coaching people when they bothered to coach or if they coached, they were just telling people what to do based on what they had already been doing. Yeah. And so these new people came back all fired up, going like rockets. We actually had them on the phone selling from the training class before they left to go back. Okay. Right? And they go back and they go like crazy, but eventually they'd be drugged down. Yeah. And so, you know, so again, we had one of those, well, what are we going to do about this moments? And we built a program to teach managers across the country what we were teaching in this new hire program. And we built a program to help them understand how to diagnose and coach to it. And we rolled that out across the country. 
And the results went like this, not just back for the new hires, but for everybody. Everybody. And that was a pivotal turning point for me that when I realized, you know, these frontline sales managers, they are the change lever. They are the performance lever and the linchpin for driving change in the organization. And if they don't know what you're teaching, if they're not bought into it, yeah. So yeah. in the future, I would engage these frontline sales managers when we were building things. Heck, most of them were the top salespeople who got promoted into their oh, management yeah, job, yeah. right? And then we're never given any management training either. Yes. So you yes. know, we, we fixed that. But we picked their brains. We got them engaged. We got them involved. We taught them. We helped them learn how to coach better. And that became... Um, a driving force in a lot of my initiatives. And, you know, now I joke on webinars, if I had a dollar to spend on a sales force, I'd spend 75 cents on the frontline sales managers because they're the ones who really make things happen and drive the change. <laughs> this is so awesome talking to you, Mike, because you've been through this enough and you've, you've, you've put the effort and the time in to really understand the data behind it and watch the performance and understand, you know, we can't just build our, you know, great salespeople without having great sales leaders that are helping them throughout the process. And, oh my goodness, my goodness. There's, there's always a portion of the front, the frontline sellers who are hungry and who are also curious learners, mm -hmm. you know, that they'll grab onto anything you give them and they will try it and they will practice and they will figure it out and they will succeed. But if you want to move the organization, if you want to move the middle, it's your frontline sales managers that, that will help you do that. I remember reading an article once about this in the Harvard Business Review. And they said, you know, when the employee turns to their manager, Bob, and says, Bob, what do you think about this, all this change that's going on? And Bob says, I don't know. It just doesn't seem like a good idea for me. That change initiative is dead. Yeah. Right. When Bob turns around and says, you know, I know it's a lot, Damon, but if you hang with me on this, I'm going to help you get through it. And the changes that we're making are going to make you better, us better, the company better, and they're going to better serve our customers. You have a completely different message. You have completely different support, and that change initiative has a prayer of driving the results that you want it to drive. Yeah, yeah, that's for sure. You're right. In the first case, it is dead. If you if you don't in, engage that that manager, that sales manager out there in those branches or in your organization, and they're not, you know, encouraging and, and leading the way they should through those changes, it's dead. It's just dead, and you've wasted your time and effort. Yeah, but uh, that's an awesome observation. And uh, honest, like you said, those are the people that can make it or break it for you. Those leaders. Yep, ab absolutely. And if you don't have the top-down support, you know the stuff that I've done has been relatively the same stuff. Right after I figured out system, process, methodology, tools, all that, I always go in curious. Right, but you see patterns over time. Right. And you recognize these patterns, and that can help speed you up a bit. Mm -hmm. But if you don't have the top-down support, you're just not going to get traction. If you don't have alignment in top-down support, 
you're not going to get traction. And so I have done some of these very same things in other organizations and just got paltry results, 3% improvement here, right? Because some people would grab onto it or gravitate to it, 5% here, right? But not like 35% yeah. or not like 600%, right? You know, and those results are so possible. I haven't walked into a sales force in a 37-year career as an employee or as a consultant with clients where I haven't seen the opportunity to at least double sales without adding a body. Wow. But most organizations, and this is mind-boggling, in fact, in a, in a long and fun career, the bane of my yeah. existence is this next statement. It's sometimes very difficult to get people who are responsible for driving revenue to actually do the things that would radically improve revenue. Yes. It's it that that is the single toughest thing because everybody gets into these patterns in comfort zones. I, I, I look at a lot of senior sales leaders today, and I often use the phrase harder, faster, longer, louder. They have driven that way and led sales organizations that way for so long. And in the time that they grew up as a sales leader, it worked. Yeah. But now we have, what does Gartner say, somewhere between a dozen and 20 buyers in some complex deals. Yeah. We have buyers who were saying things like, I'm really sick of the way that sellers don't listen, don't engage you know, or, or always just looking for their next commission, right? You know, we, we are at a point where sellers need to be buyer-centric. It doesn't mean that you don't look out for your own interest, but you have to operate in your buyer's best interest. You have to be value-focused, consultative, outcome-oriented, and you have to be a servant leader to be able to work with buyers today and help guide them through what's often a complex decision journey with a bunch of different people. Heck, yeah. a lot of people can't like agree where, with their spouse on where they're going to go have dinner yeah. or what movie to watch, right? Now put 10 people in a room and have them make a $250,000 decision, right? When they all have their own interests and personal needs and what they think they want to get out of this, getting consensus as a seller today amongst these buying committees is incredibly hard. And it yeah. takes a different skill set. And so that's one of the other things that, you know, I predict that we're, we're going to have to change on a larger scale faster than we are, is this shift toward becoming a servant leader, a buyer-centric seller, who's really a problem solver and as much a consultant. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, the organizations that are doing this, seeing huge success, the organizations who were lagging and sticking to harder, faster, longer, yeah. louder, I don't, I don't think they're going to see the next 10 years. Yeah. Well, and, and one of the things that I read recently, and I know this book's been out around, but it's, it's, uh, it's a marketing book by Marcus Sheridan about They Ask You Answer. And mm -hmm. to me, it was such a revelation in why the heck are we not just enabling people to make our customers to make better decisions. And when I, when, you know, talking with you and hearing this again, that is really as the salespeople, our job anymore is to take 
all 12 of those people, give them the information they need to make the decision, and then let them make the decision. Because at the end of the day, if you do that the right way, if you're a, a choice and you give them the best information, they're going to choose you. And, and I think it, it, but as you said, all those people have different, different perspectives and different things that they were worried about in that decision. And how do you really, as a salesperson, help them? And how does marketing help you when we're talking about sales enablement? That's got to be working together. Otherwise, I don't have that information as a salesperson. And, and so, so one of the geeky terms that I talk about a lot, Damon, that's related to that is buying process exit criteria. And exit criteria is a term that came out of Six Sigma, um, came out of process management, you know, BPM, business process management, mm -hmm. and it's even used in the software development world. And, and so if you think of a process, there are, there are stages of a process, yeah. right? They usually have stage names, but for each stage, there's an objective for that stage. There are tasks that need to be performed in that stage. And then there's this exit criteria thing, which means what do you have to complete? Which tasks must be completed to be able to exit that process stage? Well, buying process exit criteria is what does each decision maker in this stage need to see, hear, feel, understand, or believe to feel comfortable moving forward to the next stage with you? Yeah. And you know what most sellers do, right? They are they are doing the same thing the same way, the yeah. same time, in every stage with everybody. And if you can get them past that and you can say, okay, let me get into what are the exit criteria for each of these buyers. And in some stages, they're all the same. In some stages, every single one of your committee members is going to have a different set of exit mm -hmm. criteria. And if you don't address that, you're going to have this friction pulling you back from your forward motion and your sales process all the time. And so it's simple stuff like that. Um, Mac Dixon and Ted McKenna just released a book called Jolt, which is about the, the indecision that buyers feel and the risks and all that thing involved. And then how do you work with these committees to get them past that? Outstanding research, excellent book. And we're going to see more of this about decision science, I'd predict, about how do you guide people through these these decision process and make it less complicated for them? Yes. Don't give them too many choices, but give them the right choices. Marketing has got to have all the right materials in each stage yeah. of these process for all these different buyers. Sellers have to be able to understand how to articulate their messaging based on what these different sellers or these different buyers, rather, what they value. And their value might be business value, financial and operational metrics. It might be um, experiential value, mm -hmm. making a process easier or a, a, a candidate experience easier. It might be aspirational. It might have something to do with mission, vision, values, yeah. you know, or, or a cause. And everybody has personal value at stake, right? Something mm -hmm. that matters to them. Is is this going to be a risky decision that could hurt my career? Yeah. It's going to get me promoted, right? I mean, you know, so if you understand those things, you become a different seller 
than the yes. way most people are selling today. That is one of the things. When you the last thing, you become that different seller. I think that is the real, the real gunpowder to 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 light someone's career on fire is understanding how to be that type of sales person, sales professional today, and to sell that way because you will stand out far and above anyone that's doing, like you said, what is it? Harder, faster, and more of it, or whatever the heck, because because you're getting it, you're you're making people, or not making, you're giving people education so they can calm their concerns, solve their answer their questions, and allow them to make decisions that they feel comfortable going forward with. That that they're not worried about. Did that decision just put me on a path to getting fired or causing me trouble? And and then helping them through that. It's it's so cool, so cool. And you know this stuff isn't this stuff isn't rocket science. No, right. And yet I get I have an inbox and in 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 mail at LinkedIn filled with these horrible seller centric pitches. <laughs> most of most of which are trying to sell me something that I don't even buy yes. in my current job. Right. Yes. 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 We can do we can do better. Thing. Yeah, we can. We can. Actually, I, I actually I think I'm posting about that. I wrote I write my posts up every week ahead of week. So I think that's one of them that's coming out this week. Because it's a, it is, it is. I, I, I look at people that are doing that every single day and I wonder why are you wasting your time? Just it's a waste of time. But I'm not gonna go off on that rant. It's 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 so awesome, Mike. So incredible to talk to you today, man. We are gonna have to have you come back and we're gonna talk about some more stuff but let's talk we got it before we get off let's talk about what you're doing at sparks iq you guys got a lot of stuff going i mean i i'm i feel bad because we missed so many things you got so many awards you got so oh man you got check out mike check out his profile and look at this guy but what's going on at sparks iq now that that's got you fired up stuff you're ha that's happening that you're having fun with well, is uh, man, there's a lot, right? So there's a ton of great stuff going on. Um, Sparks IQ has been around as pre previous company name, uh, Strategic Pricing Associates in wholesale distribution focused on strategic pricing. And then in 2015, our CEO said, we really need to train the salespeople as part of these pricing projects to help them negotiate more effectively and got into negotiation training. Well, things have grown from there. And I joined the company in 2018 and Doug Wyatt and I collaborated to build Modern Sales Foundation. So we're talking about consultative selling, modern, you know, buyer-centric, outcome-oriented, value-focused. That's all of what this is about. And we did it in following our CEO, David's vision of what training could be. And so... We created episodic, I call it Seinfeld for sales, right? We created this Airco team. Here, wait, this is my Airco hat, right? We created this team called Airco who sells high-quality air filtration um, uh, solutions. And you see them going through the program as you're learning Modern Sales Foundations. Now, there are also, it's a, there's a studio show with two co-hosts. They teach the concepts. Then you watch the Airco team to see what does good look like or what struggles are they having. And it's kind of like watching this Netflix episode. Mm -hmm. 
But along this 26 modules, we teach them everything from the right mindsets about being biocentric. We teach them prospecting, opportunity management, and strategic account management. So it is full cycle. Because a lot of methodologies today, they focus on one little thing, yeah. right, or one piece of it, but they don't cover your entire customer life cycle. So we've got that, and we're implementing it in highly effective ways. Um, my sales coaching program that's been around since 20, what, 2003, we implemented that at Novastar. Um, yeah. We've uh, we've done that in this episodic video-based format. Wow. Um, and so we're implementing like crazy with customers. We're having a blast. We're seeing a lot of great results from it. People are raving about the programs. We just got a an award from Selling Power for being one of the top uh, top 20 virtual training companies. So we get the managers engaged, just like uh, walking the talk from what I talked about earlier. Yeah. Right, The video training is virtual, but managers generally tend to run local meetings or yep. for the coaching training, they get workshops with me along the way. And, um, you know, we're, we've got negotiation training, relationship training, probably coming out with a business acumen course. We have a virtual selling course right now. They get this. It's free. We built this thing in a little different, you know, less intense way because we just saw so much bad virtual selling. Bad lighting, bad cameras, bad backgrounds, yeah. Yeah. you know, bad, you know, bad audio, and then poor selling techniques in virtual environments, right? You know, bad research, bad call planning, no objectives, poor meeting management, and not understanding that if you're going to sell digitally and virtually, you need to be able to manage what Alego calls the the backstage and front stage, and so. You know, there are tools like digital solution rooms where you can create a, a, a personalized website for clients to go look at solutions that you load there and they can explore and share with other people. And so basically ways that you can sell when you're not there personally to sell. Mm -hmm. And so you can better manage the entire digital experience. Well, this course, Virtual Selling, is free. We're giving it away to help wow. sellers understand Hey, how can I create a better environment and how can I use skills more effectively to sell what I'm selling in a digital and virtual environment? So tons of stuff going on and we're having a blast. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Mike, it's been great talking to you today. And man, the, the listeners, the people that have been that that haven't commented, man, go back and listen. If you got in this late, go back and listen to it. There's so much gold in this. And I just want to thank arpit and the other people that have commented while we while we were on today thanks so much for that but mike i know people can follow you on linkedin and then the the sparks iq what's the what's the website address there again on sparks IQ? At, uh, sparks iq unusual spelling s p a r x i q dot com okay s p a r x i q dot com and uh there's you know you'll see both sides of the business sales analytics, strategic pricing, and then the sales training and coaching training. Um, awesome. Check it out. Reach out to me on LinkedIn. And I, I know there's a follow button there, but if you're, if you're listening here to Damon and you're one of his peeps, you should connect. Send me a, uh, an invite to connect. Tell me that you, you heard me here and I'd be happy to uh, add you to my network. 
Awesome. Awesome. Well, Mike, thanks for being here today. Thanks everyone for listening. We'll be back again later this week with another show. Mike, hang out with us for a moment and we'll talk a minute. All right. Thanks, Damon.